Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in collaboration with friends of the podcast and US law firm Morris Manning and Martin. Our topic for the next 20 minutes is an introduction to cell captives and all you need to know on what they are, why they are used and some really important best practice and legal considerations on the operation and management of them. Cells are popular insurance tools all around the world today with Guernsey and Malta particularly useful destinations for the structures in Europe while Bermuda, the Cayman Islands and many US states are also home to growing numbers of cell captives. Generally, this discussion is more geared to that latter group in the Americas region, but a lot of the principles are universally true. So joining me is Joe Holohan, a Washington DC-based attorney with Morris Manning & Martin and a member of the firm's insurance and reinsurance group, and Pete Krantz, captive practice leader at Beecher Carlson. So Joe, when we're talking about cell captives there are a lot of different names and and terminology concerning cell captives for the purposes of this conversation and and next 20 minutes what are we referring to uh, when we're discussing cell captives well yeah right richard there are different terms that are used depending on the the domicile so yeah you may see vermont for example a cell captive is referred to as a sponsored captive Uh, Elsewhere, it may be be called a protected cell captive or a segregated accounts company, segregated portfolio company. But all of these terms are are describing what's fundamentally the same sort of structure. So, and and that would be that you have a a core. I'll use the term core, and that's pretty common. That's the central hub of of the cell captive. And then you have cells that are attached to the core. And the cells can be, they can be unincorporated cells, uh, which are essentially a segregated account, or, or they can be incorporated. In some jurisdictions, permit incorporated cells. Those those are actually separate or independent legal entities. So they have their own legal agency. The cell can contract sue and be sued in its own name. And then in some jurisdictions, you have a series in a series LLC, and that's that's a little different. It's it's a little bit it's sort of between somewhere between an incorporated and an unincorporated cell. So, Joe, you actually hit on something interesting, um, and I'm, I'm just curious, um, from what you see, how frequently does the core actually take on risk? It's usually it does not, in my experience, and it could take on risk in one of, I guess, in one of two ways. As I think about it, one is that the core can expose its capital to the risk of the cells. When uh, cell captives were first conceived and, and formed, uh, that was very common. It was more common. Um, that's that predates sort of predates my my career, but when I look look at some of these structures, I see that that was more common, and it's still done sometimes today. And that's that's kind of that's the classic, the traditional rent a captive, where the participants in the cells are are actually renting the capital and surplus of the core, and the core is putting some of that surplus at risk for the liabilities of the cell. I, I don't see that very much anymore. Um, generally, the core is not a risk-bearing entity. But Pete, what, what, what do you see? Yeah, typically, we don't see the core taking on much risk in, in part because of the evolution of captives and, or cell captives in that they're set up by a sponsor who is then selling the structure to different people, whether it's for a line of business or for a specific purpose. I didn't finish my thought. The other way the core could take risk, of course, is by reinsuring cells. I do see that occasionally, depending on the structure. Thanks, Joe. I mean, Pete, you touched there upon kind of some of the purpose of these cell companies. Why have we seen 
organizations looking to utilize cell captives historically and and specifically right now for what reasons are we seeing organizations interested in cell captives historically the initial concept came about uh, when policyholders essentially had their own separate accounts with insurance companies um, and they've evolved from there I mean that that uh, you know Joe mentioned the, the segregated accounts and those structures that that started offshore um, and that that has been part of the evolution is they started offshore and then moved onshore um, in more recent years and when I say recent years I'm talking probably the last 15 or so the use of cell captives has gone through many evolutions large organizations might use a cell structure to keep risks separated uh, whether it be first party, risk or lines of business versus controlled unaffiliated or keeping less volatile risks separate from cat risks. Uh, for example, human resources may want the medical stop loss dollars or may not want the medical stop loss dollars in the same bucket as the property cat coverage. For smaller organizations, there's been um, a common talking point that cells are easier to get in and out of than a pure captive. However, some of the more tangible benefits of cell captives at present, and it depends on the jurisdiction, can be lower capitalization uh, and perhaps, which, which Joe touched on um, a bit. And again, you have to look at the jurisdiction because some have a certain amount of capital that need to go in the core and you still have potentially capital requirements in your cell. Um, and there are some jurisdictions where if your cell is on a net basis, risk-free, then there may not necessarily be a need for um, additional capital. Um, the other uh, tangible benefit uh, that's talked about is, is lower frictional costs or the captive operating expenses. The latter, so the operating expenses, becomes far more relevant the larger the structure is. Uh, an audit fee, for example, won't typically double if you add a second cell. Now, if you take that and extrapolate it out, when you're adding cells 19 or 20, the cost increase is significantly lower, making the average cost per cell a lot lower. So there is some savings, but you know, how much are we talking about? If a pure captive is one hundred and twenty-five dollars or $150,000 of operating expenses, your cell structure might be seventy-five dollars or hundred. And then the question comes down to, as you're going through the evaluation of the structure, do I need the flexibility of a pure captive versus a cell? Um, if I decided to move to a cell, how easy could that be? Is there value or how much value is there in having that lower operating cost for a period of time? So then the next part of your question gets to what are they being used for? Again, historically, it's typically one line of business. It's all a particular um, organization might want it for, say their medical stop loss. In more recent years, cell structures have been used for pooling structure, for pooling transactions. Some of those might've been a bit more dubious, unfortunately, but when they're used right, they can be very valuable tools. I have two clients unrelated with each other, but both franchisees um, who had an interest in captives. Both of them are on the smaller side, but they saw the value in utilizing a captive and decided to partner up to form a structure. Uh, they each they have a, each have a fifty percent ownership in the core, and they each took on uh, their own cell uh, as well. They were never interested in sharing each other's risks, so the pooling structure wasn't something that that they would consider. Um, they also saw the value that now that they have their structure up and running, and you know they're franchisees, so they know a whole bunch of other franchisees for the same brands, they can offer the sell out to other franchisees. Um, again, a frictional cost savings. Um, you go back 15 plus years when a sponsor set up a cell, they only let it be used for a specific purpose, but with how laws have advanced, so is usage. So you know, now a, a cell can essentially be your potentially slightly more cost-efficient pure captive structure. Um, so we're seeing cell captives used by large organizations to 
close off risk from other lines. Middle market is a bit more of a cost-efficient, quote-unquote, pure captive, and small market for aggregation, including some pooling of risk. Joe, uh, you touched upon the uh, kind of the premise uh, of cell captures based around assets and liabilities of, of each cell being segregated from each other or from every other cell. Can you just talk us through kind of how that works? Well, it's, um, it's, it's fairly simple. It's, it's by statute. The, the statute of the domicile specifies that the assets and the liabilities of the cells and the, and the core are segregated. So in other words, no cell can be held liable for the, the obligations of any other cell. Um, and the same same is true of the core. And has that segregation of cells in a cell captive ever been uh, successfully tested in court? Well, there, there are a couple cases from Bermuda where the court affirmed the um, segregation of assets and liabilities among the cells. I like one, there's, in one of the cases, the court referred to the segregation as a statutory iron curtain, which is a term I, I like it. And uh, there's also a case from uh, a federal district court case from Montana, where the court also affirmed the, the segregation of assets and liabilities. In, in none of these cases, however, was, was the segregation uh, among the cells the issue, the question that was directly before the court. So they don't have um, strong precedential value because in order for the court's you know, statement in this regard to be bind, a binding rule of law, it has to be a holding in the case. I mean, in other words, it has to be, has to be an issue that was central to the decision that was rendered in the case. And in, in none of those cases was the segregation of assets and liabilities central to the court's decision. So it, it commented on that. The courts commented on this, this, this idea, uh, the segregation. But the um, but their statements were not holdings, strictly speaking. The Montana case is interesting because the court the, the issue there was you had a um, cell protected cell captive with unincorporated cells. This is the Pack Re case. This was a reinsurance. There was a reinsurance cell in a front. The front um, reinsurance the cell did not make good on its reinsurance obligations. The front brought suit. And uh, well, they brought an arbitration proceeding. And the case, the issue was in the arbitration proceeding, who was the proper party to the to the arbitration? Uh, was it just the cell, or was it the core on behalf of the cell? Because this is this was an unincorporated cell, and the court held that that the proper party uh, was the core on behalf you know, on behalf of the cell because the cell and as an unincorporated cell, the cell didn't have any legal identity, didn't 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 have any legal agency. And so the court, the court, you know, held that to the the proper party to the arbitration proceeding would be the core, acting on behalf of the cell, and the arbitration proceeding went forward on that basis. Then that was the right that was the right decision. The problem that occurred though is that the arbitration panel, um, although the court respected the segregation of assets and liabilities and, and mentioned this in its decision, the arbitration panel did not, and its decision held the core liable for the obligations of the cell. The arbitrators are free to do that because they're not strictly bound by rules of law. They can, they can do what they think is fair and just without regard to, you know, strict legal principles. So, uh, you know, that's that's a lesson for us, and it has some consequences for how we contract when we're, when, you know, when we're um, setting up contracts with unincorporated cells and um, other other protections that you know we should put in place. So, that kind of thing, you know, to minimize the risk that that kind of thing could happen. So Joe, I actually have two questions. Uh, the first is in the Montana case, 
was there a relationship between the owners of the core and the cell in question? And then the second question that I have is uh, when you're looking at these laws, are they the same state by state? Now, th those are great questions. And as to the first question, the answer is yes. And, and that was critical here. The owners of the core were the same, the same folks as the, as the owners of the cell. And I, I don't think, I don't think any arbitration panel or any court would breach the segregation of assets and liabilities if there weren't some situation like that. You know, it was clear here that the the owners had paid fa played fast and loose with the cell structure, uh, and probably uh, based on equitable principles, it should have been held liable for for the obligations of the cell. So it was, we don't have access to the arbitration decision, or not all of it, because it's it's a confidential document. Some of it's um, uh, described in a later court case, but you know, I think I, I have to think that that was primary consideration in the result that, that we saw there. And your second question was, are the laws the same from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? They're very similar. My familiarity is, is greatest with the, the onshore jurisdictions, the U.S. jurisdictions. They do describe with some specificity the segregation of assets and liabilities. One caution I might, I might mention is each statute has, you know, there are certain things you have to do, certain hoops you need to jump through. But under the statute to ensure that, that the segregation is complete. And so, you know, for example, sometimes it's as simple as nomenclature. If you have an incorporated cell, uh, when you use the, the name of the cell has to include the term incorporated cell or IC. Um, so it's important that every time you use, you, you present the cell, you use those magic words. Otherwise, you risk um, not 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 the cell not being able to avail itself of the statutory uh, segregation. You know, you need you need to let third parties know that there's this segregation of assets and liabilities, and that when you contract with them, that the cells cells assets are are segregated, and they would they would not have the right to go against the assets of any other component of the cell capital. Joe, that, that's great because that, that leads me into my next question quite nicely, which is which I think you've just outlined one of them. But what is there anything else that organizations participating in a cell captive can do to ensure that the cell is protected? Is there any kind of best practices they need to be make sure they're following? Yeah, so so I mentioned in your, in contracts. So when your uh, cell captive or, or cell is entering into a contract with a third party, it's important, for example, that the, the contracting parties be the, the correct parties. So if it's an unincorporated cell, the proper contracting party is the is the cell captive on behalf of the unincorporated cell. But if it's an incorporated cell, then the proper party to the contract is the incorporated cell itself. And I, I see that I see sometimes that mistakes are made in this area. It's important to keep it straight. I like to build into every contract that involves cell captive uh, a statement concerning the segregation of assets and liabilities and an acknowledgement by the third party of the segregation. Um, I think that's that's useful uh, and, and it could be helpful if there's ever a dispute, a dispute. You may, in contracts with cells, because of the situation I mentioned with the arbitration panel and the PACRI case, you may want to avoid binding arbitration uh, clauses. Or um, if you have a binding arbitration clause, specify that the arbitrators are bound to respect the segregation of assets and liabilities. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the segregation among the cells is, um, that's a function of the statute in the domicile. And so 
you know, if, if you want to make, you want to increase, you want to make the chances as likely as possible that if, if a, a dispute uh, arises and it goes to a court, that that court is the court of the domicile, um, because it's more likely to respect the, the law of its own, if its own jurisdiction. So, you know, you want to specify venue and exclusive jurisdiction in the, in the domicile in a contract. You want the accounts and the assets to be located in the domicile and not somewhere else. So that if, if a third party brings suit, you know, they have to come to the domicile to attach those assets. There are other things as well, you know, especially with incorporated cells. Incorporated cell has its own board. It's got its own, so it has its own directors. It has its own officers. You want to be careful to observe the corporate formalities for the incorporated cell very strictly. So you, so, and, and not only that, you want to, um, so that means, you know, you hold, you hold board meetings. Um, contracts are signed by an officer of the cell, not an officer of the core, uh, but an officer of the incorporated cell. That's, that's very important to maintain the segregation. And not only should you, do you need to observe those formalities, but you need to document them. So each, each meeting of the board needs to have minutes, each action major action of the cell should be ratified by the board and that should be reflected either in minutes of a board meeting or unanimous consent as a resolution. Pete, in regards to the, the role of the captive manager um, on cell companies, how, how does the relationship and the role for you guys differ when you're managing a standalone pure captive to an individual cell or cell company? So I'm going to start off giving you an answer that everybody loves to hear, which is it depends. If we have one owner of the cell and all the cells belong to that one owner, essentially being used as to separate different types of risk, as we mentioned earlier, you know, if you have one parent company and, and you've got medical stop loss in one and, and property cat in another, then it, it typically doesn't vary at all because you're dealing with one owner. So if, you know, as we, as we start to look at cell structures with unrelated parties, again, it depends. Is, is the structure a single entity with the protected cells? So one legal entity? Um, and, and I'm going to defer to to Joe on sort of the setup of the officers and directors in a in individually incorporated versus segregated accounts type of structure. But if it's one legal entity and it has one group of officers and directors, but many participants in the different cells, as the manager, there's a responsibility to all of the parties, uh, and there could be varying interests uh, or opinions. Obviously, there's directors and officers, and and we, we have to follow that. But there's fiduciary responsibilities to a greater, to a broader group. And I mean, typically in those situations, the board, the board or the officers uh, should be representative of the group. Uh, but still, there can be a lot of different voices. It gets a bit easier when we're discussing individually incorporated cells. Uh, I think. Because the the cell owner, the core, and then each of the cells typically might have their own board of directors uh, and their own officers. Um, the exception being uh, when it comes to items or issues that affect everyone in the structure. For example, if the core uh, of the sponsor uh, or if the sponsor has the right to to name service providers for all the cells, things like that. Um, typically, it, it's you know there's certain service providers that would be responsible on a broad basis. So, for example. The captive manager typically will handle core and all cells, and the auditor will audit core and all cells. You're not going to have different auditors typically, but each cell might have their own investment manager. So it depends on what the particular issue is and how those participant uh, or participation agreements are presented as far as who can name the service providers and which service providers. You know, when we're setting up structures, we try to take all that into consideration 
go through it with the core owner or the sponsor uh, so that it, it can be both appealing to the participants and provide smooth and efficient governance. So just lastly, Joe, and Pete touched on some of, some of it there, is, is a question about uh, the boards and kind of good governance of sale captives. Obviously, standalone captives do have their own boards, which contributes, contributes to the governance. How, how, are, how do sales ensure that they, they have those good governance procedures in place and, um, and what is the role of the boards in, in this regard? Well, with an incorporated cell, the, the cell is essentially should be run like, like a standalone captive. So the, the board should meet with some regularity. It could be, you know, depending on the scope of operations, it could be annually. But if there are more extensive operations, you know, the board should meet should meet more often. And, you know, as I mentioned, it's not enough just to have the board meet, you need to, it's, it's, it's important to document this, these things in writing. With an unincorporated cell, you, you know, you may want to ask, ask for information about, you know, you know, some of the minutes of the board meeting may be confidential, but you may want to ask for some confirmation that, that the corporate formalities um, are, are being respected with respect to the, the cell captive as a whole. And you may want to build in some protections in the participation agreement with an indemnification in case the sponsor of the captive doesn't do what it should be doing. There's some limits to, to that, but, but, you know, that's, you know, you want to set expectations for um, how the core will be governed and operated clearly in the participation agreement. Well, thank you to Joe Holohan and Pete Krantz for a very informative 20 minutes on cell captives, their uses and best practices. There are biographies of Joe and Pete in the episode description, and you can read more about the captive practice at both Morris Manning and Martin and Beecher Carlson at globalcaptivepodcast.com. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. Captives.